Okay, so in our meetings last fall, we talked about different strategies that we can use to um, shape our hearts and cultivate in ourselves a, a right heart and being productive in our time alone with the Lord and meeting with the Lord. Now, what we're going to do today, and hopefully for most of the spring, is turn the corner on that and talk about how we bring that to bear uh, in our interactions with one another. And Colossians 3 is going to provide us with a really, really good principle down in verse 16. But we can't take verse 16 by itself, so we have to kind of start at the beginning of the chapter and work our way down. And Paul sets forth at the beginning of the chapter one of the the most important things that believers need to understand. And that that is that because you've been raised up with Christ, there are many, many things that you can do as a believer. And the first of those is seek the things that are above. Have a mindset that is set not on this world, but above us. You see that in verse 2. He tells us in in verse 3 that you have died to the old man that you were, and you are now a new man. And here is something that that is very, very helpful. You see it in verse 4. That uh, this is going to help us think rightly about all of our interactions with guys. And that is the fact that um, what we have in this world is is all we know to this point. But what is coming in the future is um, an experience that is beyond our ability to comprehend right now. And that is that when Christ is revealed, when he returns to set up his rule and reign on this earth, uh, believers will be with him together in glory. And we will be participating in, in Christ's establishing of his rule and reign on this earth. And uh, that should guard us and motivate us and encourage us uh, with how we uh, engage with one another here. So he's got some really good instructions there, In starting in verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. You have a new master now. You, you're not um, under the old rule of sin. You have a new master. Things that you should put aside are there in verse 8. Don't lie to one another. That's another instruction. We see a passage, verses 12 through 16, that we're really, really familiar with. As believers, okay, guys, you're chosen and beloved of God. Here's what you do. You put on a heart of compassion. You do all of these other things, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You're bearing with one another. You're forgiving one another. You're extending love to one another. Um, you're, You're maintaining a peaceful relationship with one another because you have peace with God. Now you can live at peace with other men. All right, so let's get to verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving and thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is talking about our interaction with one another. Um, You've got the word of God in you. It's within you. You're reading your Bibles every morning. You've got the content within your heart. You've been meditating on it. You've been thinking about it. Well, the word here, dwelling richly, is, is one word in the Greek. It's talking about how it is that the, the fruit of that comes out. It's, it's not just within you, but it's a rich dwelling within you that produces things. Um, and what Paul has in mind here is interaction with others. So because the word is in you, the word is active within you, and it is going to do something really, really helpful. And that is it is going to lead you in your interaction with others. So he says, so the first way you can see that is with wisdom doing two things. You have the wisdom from God's word, and that wisdom leads you to teach and admonish one another in your interactions with them. And teaching is not merely standing in front of a room like we're doing right now. We're actually teaching one another as we're speaking truth to one another. The main idea here that he's communicating is you are speaking biblical truth to one another. 
You're doing that so as you're engaging with one another because you've been shepherding your heart, because you've been reading your Bible, because you've been praying and pouring out your heart before the Lord, a heart of worship, a heart of confession, a heart of thanksgiving. Um, you now are equipped when you have conversations with one another to bring the truth of God's word into that conversation in ways that encourage one another, in ways that um, express comfort and consolation to one another and, and opportunities to exhort one another. So Paul says, with all wisdom, you're, you're teaching one another and you're admonishing one another. And the content of that is the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that, that, that you've been feeding yourself the truth with. So you're bringing those same truths to one another in your conversations. And you're doing all of it with gratitude to God because he is the one who, back up in, in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. God was the one who did that work in you in the first place. So what I want to do is just encourage you guys to just do all the more, pursue all the more of the excellence that you've already been running after with an emphasis this spring on taking the fruit of what you've done in your own heart shepherding with God and bringing that to bear on your interactions with one another. And it's already happening, but I just want to encourage you guys to excel still more. So anytime you're in Colossians 3 and you're thinking about all of these great realities that God has done, make sure you get to verse 16 and remind yourself of how it is that those are to flesh out in your conversations with one another. They're some of the sweetest, most encouraging conversations when you can, can affirm a brother in truth, you can comfort a brother in truth, you can rejoice together with that brother in truth, or you can bring truth that might actually have to correct him in, in some of his thinking or speaking. And, and all of that is something you can do with, with great gratitude for the Lord. So that's just a word this morning on, on an orientation that we need to have in our minds. We've We've been focusing on how to shepherd our hearts well with the word and how to meet with God over prayer. And uh, this spring, we're just going to focus on bringing the fruit. This morning, we're going to be talking about forgiveness, reconciliation, and conflict resolution. Uh, There should be a quote in your notes. I'm going to go ahead and read that to get us started. (coughs) This quote came from Jerry Rags, Men of Grace and Granite. And in the quote, it says, Men typically tend to resolve conflict in a way that wouldn't honor Christ or build up one another. We typically resolve conflicts by overpowering. If you become a good, if you become good at manipulating by your sheer maleness, then the command to become a compassionate and merciful forgiver is going to be neglected in your life and in your home. This pattern will devastate your Christian life and your testimony, but to an even greater extent, your marriage. Forgiveness is key. If you don't love mercy and learn to forgive, your intimate walk with the Father will be harmed and your conscience will be bludgeoned. bludgeoned. The greatest gift you can give your wife and family is to be like Jesus Christ. You are the most like Christ when you forgive. This is a lesson on forgiveness, reconciliation, conflict resolution. And they can seem kind of disconnected. Even as I was preparing this lesson for the first time, I remember thinking through, how was I going to connect to these? And yet, as I went to God's word, I realized that forgiveness isn't just the, a link to conflict resolution, but it's really the foundation. And so as we kind of walk through this, you're going to get to some point, maybe 40 minutes from now, and think, Matt hasn't gotten to conflict resolution yet. How long are we going to be here? Um, But the reality is we're just going to sit in forgiveness for a long time this morning and really understand what God and his word teaches us about it. Put another way, if we do not 
forgive biblically, you have no hope for reconciliation or conflict resolution. Or you could say, anywhere there is sin, forgiveness needs to be close by. Which means, anywhere there is people, forgiveness needs to be close by. Um, This isn't necessarily my own opinion on this. This is what scripture teaches. So let's open up God's word, turn to Ephesians 4 with me, and let's read it. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 31. God's word says, Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Look at the first half of 31 for a second, and let's define some of these terms. Bitterness. That can mean resentfulness. I think of bitterness as like stored up anger for a rainy day. Wrath is a violent outbreak of anger. Anger forthwith boiling up or soon subsiding again. And soon subsiding again. And anger is indignation driven by human passion. Clamor, the outcry of passion, an outward manifestation of anger. can also be brawling. And slander is evil speaking or injurious speech. And so verse 31 could be worded, let all manner of harshness and violent outbreaks of wrath and anger and brawling and slanderous speech, let it be put away from you together with all manner of malice. And then in verse 32, Paul tells us how. Through forgiveness. And how are we to forgive? just like God does. When sinned against, we are to imitate God's forgiveness. And if you keep reading in the next verse, Paul states directly what he implied in verse 32. Therefore, be imitators of God. Today's lesson will help you become an imitator of God when it comes to forgiveness. And so we'll start by just talking about what is God's forgiveness? What does God's forgiveness look like? So let's define forgiveness. The most common Greek word group for forgiveness in the New Testament is a word that means to release or let go. And then the second one is to give graciously or freely pardon. Forgiveness means to release with extravagant and lavish mercy. And we would be content to stack up these definitions and say, yep, that's what forgiveness means. We looked it up in the dictionary and now we know. But God's word does a great job of giving us pictures of what forgiveness means. And so let's work through some of these. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. So forgiveness starts with an acknowledgement of our transgressions, and it leads to a removal of them. How wide is this removal? The word picture is infinitely separate. The removal from us is unmeasurable. 
And I'm going to go ahead and read Micah 7. It says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have a compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to your forefathers from the days of old. Forgiveness is rooted here in a heart of compassion. He will subdue, literally tread underfoot. Sin is regarded as a personal enemy, which by God's sovereign grace will be utterly subdued. In one interpretation, according to one interpretation, sin is personified. And God will love us in spite of the fact that we and Israel should expect nothing but his anger. Let's sit in that thought for a minute. He will tread down our sins that rise up against us and threaten to overpower us, just as Psalm 65.3 announces. And just as Pharaoh's chariots were hurled into the sea and sank into the depths like a stone or lead weight, so God will hurl or cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. What an amazing picture of God's forgiveness of us when we continue, continually sin against him. Turn to Jeremiah 50. Yes. Yeah, I don't know what Jeremiah fifteen twenty says, but <laughs> fifty twenty is in my notes. <laughs> so Jeremiah fifty twenty. In those days and at that time, decries the Lord, search will be made for the inquiry of iniquity of Israel, and there will be none for the sins of and for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. When God forgives, you can send out a search party with infrared night vision goggles, and they won't find them. No satellite reconnaissance will find the sins, because God removed them. We'll get to this later, but the parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18 gives us an important picture of forgiveness. There, the first slave owed the king a debt of tens of millions in any currency you care to name. It was a debt that was impossible to repay. But the slave begged his patience to allow repayment, and the king went a step further. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of that debt. Perhaps the most graphic image of forgiveness in all of scripture is contained in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was a hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 13 of this chapter says that God made believers alive in Christ. And he did that through forgiveness. 
Paul writes, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having made a statement about God's forgiveness in verse 13. Paul continued to speak of that same forgiveness in verse 14, only using imagery. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. And that certificate was hostile to us. He nailed it to the cross. Think of this illustration. There's a piece of paper with every single sin that we made towards God. Every single one. That would be a long piece of paper. And God blotted every single thing on that paper out with his own blood. Nailed it to the cross and said, each one of us is no longer in debt for these sins. That's biblical forgiveness. However, at the cross, that document which recorded our unpayable debt was canceled. The Greek word literally says it was erased, as if it had never happened. It became unreadable. God took his blood and wrote across it, paid in full. So God's forgiveness is the cancellation of an unpayable debt that a sinner owes to God. It is a blotting out or a complete removal of the guilt of sin. So when, when we talk about the Ephesians 4, forgive as Christ forgave. This is the template we're supposed to put our forgiveness through. And you're probably thinking, well, maybe you're thinking, I can't pardon someone for their sins. That's not my role. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. We can't release people from their divine consequences. So what is our actual role? What does it look like for us to forgive? Oh. First off, we're called to release them from any personal right we may think we have over them. So when you think about someone whom you've needed to forgive over the years or whom you need to forgive now, think about what it is that you're actually upset about. And we need to release them from their right of any personal, any personal right that we have over them. They no longer have to settle an account with us. The debt of wrongdoing against us is gone. So let's, let's think about this. Go back to Ephesians 4. Or I'll just go back and read it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And you're standing there going, but my wife is being very obtuse. Well, we're called to release her from any personal right we may think we have over her. She no longer has to settle an account with us. What if you helped a friend move and he didn't even give you pizza? (laughs) You released the right. You you didn't deserve pizza. (laughs) What about the boss that has no concept of boundaries? I've I've had one one of those. My boss now... It drives me crazy. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, I own my own business. So. Um, 
we're called to release him from any personal right we think we may have over him. What about some of the hard cases? The father who beat me and my siblings. The, the sibling that was raped. These, these are hard cases. And, and it's not our job. We release them from any right they may have over us. Or we think they have over us. They no longer have to settle an account with us. The debt of wrongdoing must be released. You may have heard the phrase, overlooking an offense. A big piece of biblical forgiveness is overlooking an offense. So how would you do that? Well, I'm really glad you asked. I happen to have the next part of my notes answering that question. Um, Christian forgiveness and reconciliation is the next section. And the first question I have in that is, does our forgiveness parallel positional or parental forgiveness? Let me kind of explain what I mean by that. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then on the basis of Christ's payment, God forgives our unpayable debt. He judiciously sets our account so that we owe nothing now and we will never owe anything in the future. He could rightfully expect payment. Yet though he would we would spend eternity in hell, we'd never fully pay that debt. On that ground alone, we stand in a permanent state of grace. And Paul describes that in Romans 5. We are judicially and positionally forgiven of all sin for all eternity really whether we confess any specific sin or not. And we're called to confess our sin. But how many sins do you think you do that you don't confess? Because sometimes we're not even aware of them. And that doesn't change our standing before God. And that is a sweet, sweet truth of the grace of God. I remember Martin Luther, before he really understood grace, would talk about how he would sit in his room and just confess sin. And then he'd leave his room, and before he got down the hall, he'd realize he'd missed some sins and have to go back and keep confessing. And he was like, this can't be right. <laughs> and, you know, fast forward, the 95 Thesis was born and the Reformation began um, because he didn't understand grace. But we understand grace. We know that at the end of the day, we'll confess everything we know we did. We want to turn from the sins we're aware of. But we're going to stand before God, being told of sins we were unaware of. And Christ blotted those out the same way. That's what his grace looks like. And so I'm not suggesting that we forgive like this. To do that would assume that we can forgive once for all time. That's untenable. God provided his own all-sufficient sacrifice through which he pardons permanently on that ground alone. When someone sins against me, I have no sacrifice of my own on which to ground my forgiveness. Therefore, my forgiveness is not exactly the same as God's forgiveness. Said differently, God gives conditional forgiveness because he has the ability to hold the conditions. Now let's open it up to Matthew 18.
starting in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and the repayment and repayment to be made. Therefore, the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of the fellow, his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him and saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slave saw what had happened, They were deeply grieved and came to report to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you also not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brothers from his heart. Jesus' parable in this passage teaches the opposite of conditional forgiveness. If we stand in a state of permanent forgiving grace, then we must forgive the same way we've been forgiven. Because we have received a full pardon through the sufficient sacrifice of the king we must lavish that same mercy on the minuscule debts that are owed to us. Because we always stand in a permanent state of forgiving grace, we should immediately and lavishly pardon on every debt owed to us, whether it's been petitioned or not. And that leads to the next question. Do we forgive others because of our full pardon in Christ, or because they ask. Some maintain that another's repentance is a condition, that another's repentance is a condition they must meet. I don't know what I have in my notes. Some maintain that someone else asking for forgiveness is a condition that they may meet before um, forgiveness needs to be granted. I've heard this taught. Um, But this parable is clear that that cannot be the case. If this were okay, what is the condition of their forgiveness for us to be able to grant? They said something to you that was particularly perfect in the way that you say now, oh, now I can forgive them. I promise you, confessions never are perfect. If you're looking at this as a condition, there will always be a reason to say, 
well, I don't think they're fully repentant. I don't need to forgive them yet. And really, that's not even, I mean, looking at this parable, that's just not on the mind of Jesus when he was talking about forgiveness. So if I'm to forgive in the same conditional way that God does, I'd have to assume at least two things. One, I have the same authority and the right to demand the meeting of the condition. We don't. And two, the debt owed to me is the same as that which is owed to God. We clearly not. And so we have no right to conditional forgiveness. We have no ability to release people from their obligation to God. I think that's a real key here. Like at the end of the day, if someone sins, they sin against you and they sin against the creator of the universe. Let them deal with the creator of the universe, but don't harbor bitterness and and withhold forgiveness because of some condition they need to meet with you. We can't release them from their obligation to God. We must just forgive them. We have no power to absolve or cleanse sin the same way God does. So we must just release them. When we release others from their personal debt of injury to us, we are expressing the kind of forgiveness we enjoy every moment of every day as we stand in the grace of Christ. Matthew 18 demonstrates that we do not hold the same position as God when someone owes us a personal debt of injury. And the debt of injury owed to us is far different than the one we owe to God. And so we are called to demonstrate the restoring and reconciling expression of forgiveness. Now, how would we do this? What if someone injures you, offends you, or owes you restitution? You release them. You forgive them of the offense. See the pattern here? I keep saying this. When an offender comes to you and desires to acknowledge the offense, they are moved towards purity and holiness in their lives. They are not making payment to you on a debt owed to you, for they owe you nothing. You have no authority or right to hold anything against them. But because God wants his children to love one another and to treat each other with kindness, then they need to be restored to you that they might once again be pleasing to God. So let's start talking about biblical peacemaking. Peacemaking, like all aspects of the Christian life, begins with our hearts and aims for God's glory being displayed through saved and sanctified lives, growing and strengthening his church. When sin and conflict threaten to take us off that aim, we must purposely walk a path of peacemaking, taking steps of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So I'm going to list a couple of wrong ways to solve relational issues. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say when I wrote these wrong ways, I was probably thinking back on personal incidences where I've done it. Um, It's not like I made these up or found them in a book and said, oh, these are what other people are doing. Um, 
this is just an unbiblical way to resolve conflict. The first one I lifted, listed here was manipulation. Oh man, this was like the first decade of my marriage. Um, the deceptive tactic that seeks to avoid the perspective of others. It's a deception by whatever means used. We used to call this lawyering. I think the, the way we referred to it was, Matt, stop lawyering me, was how it came out in our house. Um, like withholding information, shading information in your favor in an argument. Um, exaggerating. It can lead to actually blatantly lying. Um, this does not actually solve anything. Another way to solve um, that we tend to solve relational issues is just by intimidation. The, I'm the dad, that's why. Um, I don't know if I've ever said that. I do have a son in this room, so he's laughing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Instead of actually solving the conflict, you just shut someone down and exert your authority, whether it's real authority or just the fact that you can be intimidating. Isolation. Something's, a conversation's not going the way you want. You just take your ball and go home. You just stop the conversation, move on. Commonly, this manifests itself as silence. This is the most subtle one. And I think Anne Angsted gave me this term. Um, but it's called peace faking. Um, we diffuse the situation instead of addressing the sin. You just try to move on. Like, I think this manifests itself the most in my own life. as just saying you're right when I don't think you're right. Just so that the conversation's over. Um, not actually dealing with the real issue at hand um, and then walking away going, I know I was right, but I don't care. Like, I just don't want to deal with the fight right now. Um, that's that's peace faking. I like Anne's term. I don't know if she invented it, but she taught me it. Um, there's some evidences. You know, most of these things honestly probably have become a habit in your own life and so you don't even see that you're doing it so when you look for evidence of whether you're doing this correctly or incorrectly um you can see that the results are fake the results aren't really peace they're not really a reconciled relationship there's a lack of relational harmony with the person you're fighting with if it's your spouse it it bleeds into your own home everyone knows when you guys aren't aren't really solving the issues. Um, and so there's actually very little peace. Like that in that instance may have gone away and may have stopped, but peace does not exist around you. And so if you start to wonder, and Jenna and I have done this before, it's like, man, it seems like we're fighting a lot lately. Well, well why? There's probably, we're probably doing one of these and we don't even realize it. And we're not actually resolving the peace. And so we need to sit down and say, how are we sinning against each other? And how are we not forgiving each other? At the heart of this are two basic idolatries. Um, 
I don't think that we're sitting there, although sometimes we may be going, oh, this is exactly what I'm doing. Um, I'm believing the lie that God is not sovereign. That's why I'm doing this. Um, But we're not trusting the sovereign work of God and trusting him to bring about a biblical solution when we just want to shut down the conversation and move on. We're taking matters into our own hands. We might think that superficial unity is sufficient. If you're not really dealing with the sin in the situation, whether it's mine or someone else's, and you're just moving on, you're looking for a quiet home, not a peaceful home. And you're thinking that's good enough. Um, The idolatry is comfort. And it's taking comfort in the lie that we can be content with fake unity. Obedience demands that we strive for actual biblical love that denies self. Superficial unity is not biblical unity. Superficial unity is human, it's manufactured, and frankly, it's self-centered. It is always temporary. It gives you a false sense of peace, but Christ isn't there. And in the end, it denies and dishonors Christ. We are, as Christians, are called to the opposite of this. We are called to engage conflict. And we are called to engage it in such a way that Christ becomes honored through the difficulty. So I'm not saying we're called to pick a fight, but we're not called to run away from a disagreement. We're called to interact in a biblical way to make sure that God is being honored. So what's some of the approaches? Let me put a few scenarios in your mind. The easiest scenario to throw in your mind is a married couple. um, Because when you're around each other enough, you tend to fight. I don't know if that's just at my house. Um, Couples fight. If you've got roommates, you probably get along 100% of the time. But when you get married, you're going to fight with your spouse. Um, I'm kidding, obviously. If you're married, let's assume you're married to a believer. And she sinned against you, but it's not necessarily habitual sin. Um, It doesn't need to be addressed as such. It was a single occurrence in a moment of passion. Um, Somehow, so remember this is a hypothetical, somehow you didn't sin in this situation. Well, in that case, your job is to forgive her, overlook the offense, and move on. Um, If you both sinned, which is way more likely, you need to do the same thing. But you also must seek her forgiveness when you sinned against her. So notice how you don't say, hey, you know, you yelled at me and I yelled at you. Let's just forgive each other. You say, honey. I lost my temper. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And you leave it at that. What if this is a situation where her sin against you is actually a pattern of unrepentant sin? And you sinned against her in response to it. There's, frankly, there's just not a lot of opportunities for you to get sinned against where you don't sin against someone else. So, um, I would say you forgive her. 
You overlook the offense in the moment. You seek her forgiveness. But you don't ignore the sin. And this is where the path of peacemaking really comes in. Because this is where Scripture talks all over the place. And we don't have time today to go through all of it. But about how to interact with someone else who is sinning. Um, About a year ago, I think Smed taught a really good lesson on this. It was almost exactly a year ago. Um, on just what it means as Christians to go confront other sinners. I would go to the website and look at it. Um, I know it's a year ago because I taught this lesson almost exactly a year ago in my notes last year. It said this last Sunday, Smed taught a really good lesson on this. So um, 53 weeks ago, he taught a really good lesson on how to go confront sin. Um, It should not happen in the moment of sin. People aren't really receptive um, in that moment. But if you sit down and you bring up what God's word says about that. And has Denny taught repentance yet or is that next week? I think if you, if you haven't heard Denny teach repentance and build yet, it's coming. Um, there's a great part of the repentance lesson that just takes, through, takes you through 2 Corinthians 7 and talks about what your heart needs to be towards this sin. Um, when you're confronting someone in their sin, it's really good to just bring scripture and say, hey, I've seen this in you, and this is what God's word says about that. Um, And let God's word speak. I said this at the beginning. Um, It's in your notes. I'm going to read it again. Peacemaking, like all aspects of the Christian life, begins with our hearts and aims for God's glory being displayed. I think that's so important if you're going to confront sin that you know in your heart you have fully forgiven this person for their sin against you. Um, It's going to come out if you don't when you go to confront sin. And so start with your own heart. Seek your heart. Take time. Say, hey God, I think I've forgiven this person. Um, Show me if I haven't. Give me patience to confront the sin or not confront the sin until I have fully forgiven the person from my heart. Um, You don't want to walk into that conversation with bitterness in your heart. Um, It'll just be a cause for you to continue to sin against that person. So it aims for God's glory being displayed. That's your aim when you're confronting sin. You're not trying to fix this person so that your life is better. You want them to be a beacon of God's glory in in a lost world. We're saved in sanctified lives, growing and strengthening his church. And sin and conflict threaten to take us off that aim. We must purposefully think through and walk the path of peacemaking, taking steps of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. This begins with our hearts. We must open up God's word. This isn't an opportunity to let manipulation come through and say, hey, I'm going to bend these verses to prove my point. This is an opportunity to just let God's word speak. Everything we know about our hearts, it's utterly sinful before salvation. It's still tending towards sin, even upon salvation. It's deceitful, and we've got to go make sure that our hearts are shepherded well before we step into these. Um, And, frankly, understanding this about our hearts, of course we're going to have conflicts. 
And so we need to be quick to forgive. We need to be shepherding our hearts to God's word before conflict arrives, through conflict, because we want to know our holy God better. We need to know ourselves better. And we need to better care for the hearts of those around us. The path we must walk when sin and conflict are threatening to take us off that aim is first repentance. It must be repentance. Thomas Watson defines repentance in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, um, which I'm sure is on the book table. He says, agreeing with God about your sin, that is what repentance is. We find our truths about ourselves and our sin from God's word. As we seek God's word and shepherd our own hearts, true repentance will be marked with sight for sin, sorrow for sin, and confession of sin. Reconciliation. Christian, our entire life, our faith is built on the foundation of reconciliation. Christianity is not just a God-given sight for our sin followed by confession. Confession. It is not just forgiveness granted by a holy God who sacrificed his own son to make the way of forgiveness possible. If God had just drawn us to repentance and confession, if he had just forgiven us, that would be amazing. That would be more than we deserve beyond our understanding. But that's not all that Christ imputed on us. Walking with Christ is to be in relationship with Christ. God has given us his very word. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And he has left us his spirit. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is our father. We are his children. We are reconciled to Christ through his forgiveness at the cross. And reconciliation is his call for us with other believers. So last, as we close, we've talked a lot about when others sin. But we all know that we're usually the one to create the fence. Men, we are called to be peacemakers. And we need to make it easy for others to come to us and bring that to us. Um, That's been another one. It takes humility. It's been another one. um, It was early in our marriage. I think I was talking about someone being difficult to confront in their sin. And Jenna's like, well, they're just like you. It's like, thanks. (laughs) But it cut like a knife. (laughs) And she's like, she was probably more gracious than I'm portraying her to be. But she's like, it, it's so hard for me to come to you and tell you what's, what I'm feeling when you sin against me. Because you always turn it back around on me. Um, and, and she was right. And we need to cultivate an attitude of seeking someone to come and share an offense with us when we've sinned against them. We need to be quick to ask for that. Um, if you want to be a good peacemaker, just constantly be looking for opportunities to give other people 
like looking for opportunities so other people can confront you about sin in your life. And we don't we don't want sin in our lives. We don't want to be hard to talk to. We don't want this. We want to honor God. Um, and somehow our default is to make that hard for people. Um, and so we need to be shepherding our hearts away from that um, and, and towards just quickness to be confrontable. Um, let me close this in prayer. Lord God, it is staggering to read about forgiveness because all, all it really is is just a lesson in what you did for us at the cross, Lord. Um, and, and it's unbelievable. You created a race that constantly sins against you and your solution to that problem was to come and die. To show love in a way none of us could ever show love. Lord, we are we are sitting at the foot of your cross, pleading with you to help us forgive like you. Lord, we know this is not anything we can do in our own power. It is only through your grace in our lives, you're conforming us to your likeness, that we even have a hope at being able to forgive like you. And so continue to work in our hearts. Lord, give us the discipline to to come near to you, to be like you, to love you, so that we can do the same to those around us, Lord. In your name.